Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent. In the US, we have a segment from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been talking to Anna Arsoff from Moody's. This week, we'll be discussing the latest pronouncements on Brexit from the chief uh, financial watchdog in the UK. Also, a look at Wells Fargo and the implications of the Federal Reserve's decision on four of its directors. And finally, Ben McClanahan's conversation with Moody's about predictions for the year. First, though, a look at the Prudential Regulation Authority. And Caroline, you and I interviewed the head of the chief regulator, Sam Woods, the other day. And he had quite a lot of interesting things to say on Brexit, particularly Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty encyclopedic conversation that we had. But in terms of the real takeaways, I think what was particularly interesting, given the timing, was this underscore that in no way would the BOE be watering down regulation. There would be no bonfire of the regulations despite Brexit. And I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, looking at what's happening in the United States, and there's very clear moves there to lessen some of the burdens on Wall Street. And second of all, because very clearly trying to water down burdensome regulation is one of the key calls for some Brexiters. And I think it's also a pretty central concern of some of the EU27 as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hear exactly what Sam Woods had to say on that topic. We will maintain standards of resilience in the financial sector at least as high as those we have today, is the first thing I'd say. Second thing is, if you look at a lot of things we've done, I think the idea that we're somehow sub-EU standard or would want to be sub-EU standard doesn't bear scrutiny. So you look at ring fencing, you look at sea management regime. In areas where there is scope to go further, we have often done so. But the third thing is, truthfully, what are we doing on Brexit? Nationalising the key, so bringing in the rules. We're providing advice to government on in what we think it might want to negotiate in the end state and the transition on things like contract continuity. And then we've got loads of work with individual firms. And we are consciously not investing massively in the question of what might happen to the regime itself in the end state because it depends fundamentally on what kind of a deal is struck. So honestly, we just don't think the returns to that are very high at the moment. Another big topic of Brexit debate is exactly what happens after March 2019. A lot of chatter about a transition deal of some kind, although we don't know exactly what that'll be. And Sam Woods had, I suppose, a generous proposition that he was talking about there in terms of the way the regulator will treat financial services firms from the EU27 during any transition period. Yeah, that's right. So he talked about the BOE being willing to give a so-called regulatory underpinning to any clear political deal over a transitional period, even if it wasn't legally thrashed out at this point. And I think the idea is that firms can give some kind of credibility and weight to the statement and not rush to instigate their worst case contingency plans 
And I think it sort of follows on very clearly from the step that the PRA and the bank took just before Christmas, where they said that they were coming from a position where they would be willing to allow European firms to enjoy a third country branch status rather than have to subsidiarise in the first instance. And obviously that being dependent on how much cooperation they saw from the other side. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting that we haven't necessarily seen a kind of reciprocity of that attitude from EU27 regulators, principally the European Central Bank. But that'll be an interesting theme to follow. Well, let's have a listen to exactly what Sam said on that. I think a question that will come up for us is if there is a completely diamond clear political agreement, firms will then be wondering what weight do they attach to that because it won't at that point be legally binding. It'll become legally binding somewhere later. And I think a a question for us is will we be able to provide some kind of regulatory underpin to such a statement if such a statement emerges? And I think that we should be able to as long as the agreement is clear. Politically. What would a regulatory underpin look like? Well, I think it would be some sort of a statement from us which said, given the clarity of the political agreement, we think it's reasonable for firms to rely on that as a planning assumption. And further to that, that if that assumption proved to be wrong, that's what we have the fallback of interim permissions for, which the government has already announced it will provide. So that's not a decision that we have taken. But I think it follows logically from what we did in December that we should be willing to do such a thing if there's an absolutely clear political agreement. I think the question is, will our colleagues in the EU27 do the same thing? And finally, another point among the many that Sam Woods talked about that we thought was particularly interesting and worth pulling out was comments that he made about the reason for some members of the EU27 having a problem with a third-way deal, a kind of free trade deal that goes beyond equivalence and avoids the potential need for subsidiarisation within the EU. And this is where he speculated gently around potential political motivation behind this. Here's what he had to say. My honest view is it doesn't favour us particularly, because when you boil it down to what it is, it's this more efficient means of selling across the border. And who is that going to benefit in the first place? Is it going to benefit the firms who do that? And as I say, that, that is some British firms, but it's a lot of firms from the U27 and from the rest of the world. And I think the benefits of what will accrue generally. But clearly, politically, it does mean that those institutions can stay here and don't have to move to Paris or Frankfurt or whatever in terms of subsidiaries. So, it's, it, I mean, that's... So there is, you know, the question is there a sort of industrial policy objective to achieve yeah. that? Yeah. So, look, the politicians will have to decide it, but I think it is certainly technically doable. But, of course, if it can't be agreed, then you do come to that choice, which yeah. I think would be suboptimal between those you know, two more sort of extreme options. Caroline, your final thoughts on that and anything else? I think the Bank of England and the sister regulator at the Financial Conduct Authority have both been pushing of late this idea of a bespoke arrangement for financial services. They keep on stressing that technically it's not impossible. It's not been done before in services, only in goods, but they stress that we're in an unprecedented situation with Brexit. And actually, what I thought was interesting, Sam said that technically such a deal would not be at all the most technically difficult thing that the PRAs had to do recently. Yeah, and hence suggesting that politics was a thing that yeah, might go in exactly, the way. That yeah. Actually, it's politics rather than regulation or the law that's standing in the way, as with everything. Very good. Let's move on to our second topic. 
So Wells Fargo has had another bit of bad news, to say the least. Laura, their shares were off nearly 10% on Monday after four of their directors were frozen out, effectively, by the regulator. Yeah, so the regulator hasn't said which four. I think that's up to the board itself to decide. What they basically said is they want four directors to be changed by the end of the year. They've also said that they are going to stop Wells Fargo from increasing the size of its balance sheet from its current two trillion or so. These sanctions are the slap on the wrist or a very hard slap on the wrist because of the consumer mis-selling scandal that Wells had last year. So this is basically another round, but this is the first time the Fed has actually restricted a bank's balance sheet in this way. And it's the first time I've ever seen any regulator call for such wide-scale sackings on a board because a lot of Wells directors and the Wells chief executive at the time who were in place in the lead-up to this scandal have already gone. So this is calling for a really big overhaul now. Yeah, it's an interestingly tough reaction. Obviously, coincides as well with a refreshed bearish attitude on Wall Street, contributing no doubt to some of that share price fall. But 10% or near 10% is pretty dramatic. Martin, what context do you see this in and what might the broader ramifications be? Well, I think this is really interesting that they're going after the individuals on the board as much as the institution. Obviously, the institution was fined $185 million, but it really is a sign of how regulators have decided that their immediate post-crisis reaction was, in many cases, to impose big fines on these institutions, but to let the bankers themselves and the board members that oversaw a lot of this misbehaviour, whether it be the LIBOR rigging or the Forex rigging or the mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities, they let the individuals more or less get off scot-free. And they got very roundly criticised for that in political circles. And I think you're seeing now on both sides of the Atlantic, in the UK as well, with the senior managers regime, a desire to have individuals held accountable for things that happen under their watch. And it's interesting that the ramifications of this for bankers' appetite for sitting on bank boards, because we're already seeing banks complaining that they're finding it hard to find suitably qualified people who haven't been disqualified by the financial crisis to sit on their boards. Now you've got regulators targeting individuals and holding them much more accountable for things that happen under their watch. Even if they claim, as they did in the Wells case, that they were misled by management, they're saying, no, no, you need to be on top of this sort of stuff. And if you didn't know about it, you should have done. Laura, do you agree? Yeah, there's kind of two things going on there. So it's not just that it's making bank boards less attractive for bankers. It's that it's making them less attractive for the diverse corporate world. And what they're trying to do is get more and more diverse people onto these boards. So they don't want you just to have accountants and just to have banking backgrounds. They want a diversity of background. However, if you're coming to be a director of a bank and you haven't grown up in banking, it's going to be harder for you to spot these things. And you're going to have less of a chance. If you are being given incorrect information, you're going to find it harder to actually challenge that. So I think this is going to make people think very hard as to whether it's going to be attractive to get on a board. And then it also puts a real burden on you. Once you're there, it isn't enough to just show up for meetings. You have to really put a lot of time in to satisfy yourself that you are understanding everything and that you're properly overseeing everything. Because a bank the size of Wells Fargo, I mean, trying to oversee a bank that has $2 trillion of assets, it's a massive entity. So I'm not sure if this will be the start of a broader wave or if it will just make people more reluctant to get on boards. We may not see any more of these. This may be the only one because the directors who maybe shouldn't be there just won't sign up in the first place. 
One final point, Martin, you mentioned the UK's senior managers regime. And obviously, we're still in the middle of the regulatory assessment of whether the SMR was breached effectively by Barclays chief executive, Jess Staley, when he mishandled a whistleblowing incident. This is nine months ago now, but the regulators are still weighing their options on this. What, if anything, does the treatment of Wells directors by the Fed do for UK regulators in terms of their assessment of the Barclays situation? Does it put more pressure on them to be tough? I don't think it will influence their decision, but I think it may have an impact on the outcome of the decision if they decide that Jez Staley has committed serious wrongdoing here and they go further than the bank's board has already done. The bank's board, if you remember, said that they would dock his pay heavily. They censured him, but they said that there was mitigating circumstances and that he was well-intentioned. Now, if the regulator goes beyond that and finds evidence of more wrongdoing or less fit and proper behaviour, then I think that could have a reflection on the board and that this really shows that the board members who've backed Jess Staley could find themselves under pressure if this decision goes against Jez Staley, because this will very much reflect on them that they should have taken a much tougher view in the first place. Well, definitely one to watch. We have bets on in the office as to whether Jess Staley and the others, and whether they'll still be there a year on from the incident itself. Let's move on to our third item. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Anna Arsoff from Moody's about her predictions for the year in financial services. Anna, thanks very much for joining me. Let's talk about uh, Joseph Otting, the new head of the Office of the Controller of the Currency, who in his first press conference in uh, mid-December stood up. He's wearing a dark suit and an American flag cufflinks. And he said something like, the US banking sector is in the best shape it's ever been since I began working in this industry in 1981. Now, I think he could be right. But are we at the point now of undoing some of that good work? Are you worried, as someone who studies bank balance sheets and creditworthiness, we're about to undo the good work we've done on capital, liquidity, and so on? Look, I think that there are a number of proposals out there uh, around, uh, particularly I'm speaking here from the Treasury recommendations on uh, improving uh, bank regulation as well as capital markets regulation. And, you know, some of those proposals on their own can certainly be credit negative. And particularly here, I'm thinking about, you know, tweaking the supplementary leverage ratio or uh, liquidity coverage ratio. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, we believe those, from everything we see now there, as proposals coming from the regulators, is that those were, are largely tweaks on the margins, mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily going to take back all the good regulatory work that's been done uh, post-crisis that ultimately we believe has been positive for creditors. Okay, hence your positive outlook for, for all the big global investment banks. Yes, yeah, so this year we have a change in our outlook. We are at positive outlook, uh, which again, to to speak about what it means, positive outlook, is really we think that the fundamentals and the mm. operating fundamentals for for this group of firms is going to improve over the course of 2018. This is a 12 to 18 months view, if you will, of the operating environment for the global investment banks. Yeah. The primary reason for our outlook is that we believe that we are at a turning point of the cycle, particularly in regards to profitability. Mm. Uh, These firms have been uh, struggling quite a lot with, um, number one, um, significantly high litigation and conduct costs, uh, you know, north of $200 uh, for this group of 14 firms that we 
call global investment banks. There has been, you know, the low rate environment, uh, globally negative rates in Europe certainly has not helped uh, the profitability. They had to invest a lot in mm-hmm. compliance and technology as part of this increased uh, of, uh, uh, of regulatory requ- requirements. Certainly, the capital markets, uh, you know, revenues uh, have been, you know, quite lower than, than pre-crisis, particularly the fixed income business right. has been uh, negatively affected. And we believe that there are drivers there that are both structural and cyclical. Uh, quickly on the litigation, you're right, hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. that the big banks have spent given to, to regulators the expense of shareholders, of course. Um, is there an end to that now? Look, there's always going to be a risk for litigation and, and conduct charges out there. And we see even post the mortgage crisis debris that was roughly counts for h- half of that right. uh, 200 plus billion dollar charge. Then there has been LIBOR, there has been FX, yeah. money laundering, etc., etc. So we're not saying that these banks will be, you know, clean and absent litigation charges or conduct charges, but certainly the type of uh, risks uh, and leftovers from the mortgage crisis is not something that we're seeing on the horizon. And do you have a view on on the trading, uh, particularly the the bond trading slump, uh, which we've seen since the crisis almost every year, the aggregate revenues for for that big group of banks has, has, has dwindled. Do you see it recovering? You know, we, we try to unpack that. So the structural element is really, if you think about it, a lot of that fixed income revenues that were driven by, by a lot of structured finance, mm-hmm. you know, the very high leverage that these banks were allowed to take, that's not coming back. And banks are very much aware of that. That's why they've gone to restructure a lot of these businesses and cut costs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But they're in the cyclical element. The cyclical element is where the rates outlook is. We've been in an unprecedented low rate environment, and it's uh, in a relatively global coordination around low rates and even negative rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that the U.S. Uh, will, you know, continue to diverge and diverge more uh, towards 2018. At least our economists think that for three rate hikes in 2018, and uh, Europe to follow uh, later than that. The investors may take, uh, you know, different views that there is a time to he- to hedge and, and engage in the marketplace, and therefore benefit. Um, bond trading. But of course, we're not expecting necessarily that particularly high you know, revenues in, in fixed income, where certainly we see that the global growth outlook uh, and the relatively benign current conditions globally can drive uh, potentially a continued positive investment banking revenues, which certainly will help these firms. And with those three rate increases, perhaps more, perhaps less, uh, will it flow instantly to the bottom line through higher net interest margins? No, I think that there is. we are uh, obviously seeing how the, the current rate increases have benefited. And, of course, not everything has uh, has uh, gone to the positive line. Mm-hmm. We are, we're talking about b- deposit betas, how they're going to look in this cycle versus different cycles. And it's hard to say. But certainly, even incrementally, if they don't recoup the whole benefit, there will be benefit to the bottom line that yeah. these banks will retain. And the repricing that we've seen to date has really not been on the retail side of deposits. It has been really more on the large um, commercial deposit and wealth management rather than the retail deposits. So, mm-hmm. so to date, if that continues, of course, there will be a benefit that will remain for the banks. And on broader financial regulation reform, is there anything you're particularly keen to see or particularly keen not to see? Yes, that's a very, very interesting point that to the extent the U.S. diverges from you know, the global standards, which was our fear, you know, certainly we will see an opportunity for regulatory arbitrage, which is never, right. you know, credit uh, positive, as we know, for, the, for, for any financial institutions and, and banks in this uh, in this case. So to the extent that there is, um, you know, continuing alignment, uh, particularly, I would say, on the Basel rules between, you know, U.S. and Europe, I think that's very important. It was very good to see that basically the finalization of the Basel three rules uh, are is out there, and we see that as credit positive. Okay. We were worried about if the net stable fund ratios will be finalized. And 
and uh, it is. There is obviously going to be longer implementation mm-hmm. of these rules, but nevertheless, they are finalized, and that's credit positive. It's, it's important how, uh, of course, uh, various jurisdictions will implement these rules. The closer the alignment, the better it is yeah. from a bondholder perspective. You, you, uh, still on Capitol Hill, uh, in December, just before Christmas, there was a big tax bill. And uh, I imagine that's credit positive, is it, for, for banks? If you reduce tax liabilities, you, you increase credit worthiness. Yes, we believe that it's marginally credit positive, and uh, obviously you wonder how can it be marginally positive when you cut, you know, tax from you know to twenty one percent or so from thirty five plus. Well, it's it's marginally because we believe that ultimately, uh, yes, the net income for these firms will be higher, but most of that benefit will be right by shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. Okay. Well, how it's positive for bondholders is that the firms who have been not. Uh, realizing their profitability to at least be to the level of their cost of equity, mm-hmm. uh, certainly by the form of buybacks and, and more dividends, will be able to please more shareholders, i.e. so then the pressures of shareholders will be potentially, hopefully, abating. So it all sounds a very positive scenario. What threats do you see out there for this big group of global investment banks? We believe that we are at a cyclical point. We have strong capital, strong liquidity. Asset quality is pretty good um, on, on a global level and has improved uh, over the last uh, you know few years, but certainly we're watching for what we call certain tail risks, and by mm-hmm. tail risk we mean that uh, risk that we don't expect to happen, but okay. uh, there certainly is a possibility of that, and particularly in terms of how the large central bank balance sheets will unwind. Right. And, and really, the risk that we are watching for is to the extent there is um, non you know surprise in the market of for meter, I would say the ECB or the Fed and uh, unexpected you know, rate hike or the mm-hmm. degree of a rate hike, how the market will react. And the ways it can react is that it can create certainly you know, asset price shocks uh, in the marketplace. This can disengage investors, mm-hmm. and I, in that case, basically disintensifies them to, to, to participate in the markets and, and therefore uh, result in lower markets revenues, um, but also can create asset price uh, shocks that can result in risk management issues mm-hmm. for, for these firms. We are not expecting it because to date we've seen a well-telegraphed uh, monetary policy, certainly coming from the Fed, and we expect that will be the base case, mm-hmm. but it, it's something that we are watching for. What about more immediate risks that you are conscious that things perhaps must get worse pretty soon? You know, there has been significant increase in corporate leverage over the last, you know, few years. Uh, what we call the cheap money, low rates, has uh, uh, has resulted in very high, you know, boost in leverage lending, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in the U.S. It's a very profitable business, obviously, uh, for the firms, and that's something that you know creates obviously a leverage in any system. An increase in leverage system is not healthy over okay. long run. Uh, the other uh, aspect that we've been you know concerned, uh, particularly recently, has been in, in increasing charge-offs for a um, number of credit card issuers, okay. and it's something that l- leaves us to pause in terms of how, why are charge-offs increasing in a relatively benign credit environment, very low unemployment, etc. And uh, there has been you know significant uh, growth in uh, the credit card business has been a very profitable business post-crisis for a number of banks, you know, particularly for you know, JP Morgan, City, right. etc. So that's something we're watching, how the, the credit card and consumer leverage is going to play out. And for, for risks that we've been flagging for, for a longer period of time, certainly has been 
commercial real estate commercial lending. That's been a cyclical high as well. We believe that the auto lending uh, business has been very competitive mm-hmm. uh, and, and unhealthy from a credit perspective. Right. And, and so some of the big banks that. have retreated, haven't they? Yes, the big banks have. the subprime sector. I- indeed. I think the banks are not, uh, the big banks that we're talking this, uh, in particularly in this group, are not uh, participating in the subprime, largely in the subprime sector. That's sort of in the off the banks or the non, non-regulated institutions is where that business is being underwritten. But as you know, the banks are providing warehouse facility lines to support that business. Mm-hmm. So ultimately can come and bite you even if you're not a direct lender. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Anna Asof. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline, Martin and Laura here in the studio and Ben and his guest Anna Asof in the US. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Key. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.